The Bible reading today is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And this is the word of God. Thanks for that reading, Lee Chu. Um, let me welcome you, add my welcome to Jono's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're working through this section of Luke's Gospel this term and come to this passage that we're considering this morning. Um, so let me encourage you uh, to join me in prayer now that God will really help us. It's a, it's a small passage, but there's a lot packed in in terms of implication. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather this morning. We thank you that you are a speaking God, that we hear your voice clearly today in the pages of Scripture and ultimately in the person of your Son, whom they focus on. We pray that you might help us as we reflect on Christ's words and actions this morning, help us to see uh, the great offer of freedom that he brings, radical freedom. We pray that you might uh, challenge us afresh to think about our own outlook. Encourage us where needed to, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the fight for freedom is often one between nations. Sometimes it's internally, like the clashes that have been going on in Hong Kong. But such fights for freedom are often viewed as radical. Uh, they can sometimes involve violence, uh, which is sad. But even when the protests are peaceful, uh, there can be a real sense of call for radical change. There is a desire for oppression to be lifted, for emancipation to finally come. And the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s is one famous example that raised up you know, powerful speakers like Martin Luther King, um, he spoke most famously that I have a dream speech on August 28, 1963. He was standing in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial and he was looking out on 250,000 people who had come to think about civil rights within the United States. And he said in part in that speech, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day my four children will live in a nation where they are no longer judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state, 
every area, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, whether black men or white men, whether Jews or Gentiles, Protestants or Catholics, will join hands together and sing the words of that old Negro spiritual song, free at last, free at last, great God almighty, we are free at last. Well, words like that are powerful, they inspire, they call people to a vision of a renewed freedom. But in our passage today, we see Jesus offering freedom, removal of things that bind us. And it's not a speech to a giant crowd, it's a talk in front of a small group of Jews in a synagogue. But the implications of what he said echo down through the ages. They have huge implications for all people, including ourselves today. And so the question I want us to consider this morning is this. How does Jesus bring radical freedom? How does Jesus bring radical freedom? Well, the first answer to that question is this. Through provocative compassion. Through provocative compassion. Notice again how this section starts in verses 10 to 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, to this point in the gospel, Luke has frequently presented Jesus' teaching in one of the synagogues. A synagogue was a gathering or assembly of Jews to worship God, to hear the law and prophets read, to offer prayers. And the origin of the synagogue is thought to date back to the exilic period, and the people were exiled in Babylon, and they couldn't go to the temple, and they would assemble each week. And this continued on their return to Israel, and you would have a synagogue in every local community, much like a church today. But not only is the location established in verse 10, but notice also the day. The setting is the Sabbath. It's the day of rest, when God's people were to focus on him. And just as Christians gather on a Sunday to worship God, so the Jews gathered on a Sabbath or a Saturday. And it's the timing of Christ's actions and his words on this particular day that causes the stir. I'll come back to that in a moment. But firstly, notice the situation of this woman. Think about her predicament. She has been crippled for 18 years, bent over, unable to straighten up. This back injury, if I can call it that, is said to have a spiritual source. Notice that we hear about um, a spirit of sickness in verse 11, told that she's bound by Satan in verse 16. It doesn't uh, mean that we need to assume necessarily that this aff affliction uh, came from demonic possession. Uh, there's no record of Jesus removing an evil spirit here, but certainly her disability is attributed to a spiritual cause. What we do need to assume is that this would have not only affected her mobility, but her social status. Because people would have looked down on her, presumably. As we saw last week in the first section of Luke 13, people often associated any suffering that people were going through with the punishment of God. 
If something is happening, God must have cursed them in their life. Of course, Jesus pointed out, as we saw in last week's passage, that this is not always the case. But it was likely that she would be somebody who would hang in the shadows. She would be looked down upon. She's not somebody who is wanting to be in the centre of things. She certainly didn't want to be front and centre in the synagogue. But that's exactly what Jesus made her in verse 12, did you notice? We're told that when Jesus saw her, he called her forward. Now, no doubt many people would have just looked straight past her. They would have ignored her. She would have been invisible, as it were, to some. But not to Jesus, and he brings her out in front of everyone as he decides to heal her. Now, this is provocative compassion. Jesus could have gone away quietly afterwards and healed her. He could have done it the next day or a week later. But he deliberately brings her in the middle of the gathering, out front and centre, before the leaders in particular, to speak to her and heal her. He announces, did you notice, in verse 12, before he's even placed his hands on her and healed her, that she is set free. Set free from her infirmity. Imagine what would be going through her mind at that point. What amazing words for her to see, to hear, after 18 long years 18 years. This public healing would have ensured that everyone knew of her freedom from her affliction, but also the cause of it, that Jesus had done this. Is it any wonder then that she praised God in verse 13 after her instant healing as Jesus placed her hands on her? I think it's hard for us to fully comprehend the joy, the thankfulness that she would have had at that moment, her affliction lifted, what has bound her is gone, she's suddenly free. But there's more to why Jesus had healed her openly on the Sabbath than simply for her to gain freedom that day. This was a teaching moment. He was wanting to raise something in front of everyone, including the leaders. And that brings me to my second point. How does Jesus bring radical freedom? Well, he not only frees this woman for her physical affliction, but he does so through pointing to the purpose of the Sabbath. He does so through pointing... To the true purpose of the Sabbath. So notice the discussion that now unfolds in verses 14 to 17 following Jesus' incredible miracle. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the, leader, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath Untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Notice the different reactions here to Christ's healing miracle. And all these reactions are about the Sabbath. Firstly, on the one hand, the synagogue leader and his supporters are indignant. That is, they are angry with Jesus. How dare he come into our synagogue and do this? They are frustrated that he has made this happen on the Sabbath. But notice that they either wimp out or don't want to deal with him directly and so they don't rebuke Jesus. Rather, the synagogue leader turns and berates all of the people. 
and blames them for this healing happening on the Sabbath and says to them, well, don't come here. You know, you've encouraged this to happen. Don't come here seeking healing on the Sabbath. You've got six other days to do it. What is going on here? Why is this leader so incensed? Isn't he happy? Isn't he amazed? Isn't he excited that this woman who they've known for so long is now well? Why this reaction? Well, Jesus is being indirectly accused of working on the Sabbath. See, their arguments sprang from the Old Testament law. The fourth of the Ten Commandments, first given in Exodus 20, says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Nothing, no one. There was God's law. But in order that the law not be broken, the Pharisees had devised a precise code of additional regulations, a list cataloging 35 different kinds of work that were prohibited as they saw it. And these kinds of work included healing. And so for the synagogue leader and his supporters, Jesus had broken the Sabbath. He's working on the Sabbath. And so he wants to reassert his authority. He's being challenged here, and so he sort of you know, lectures the people about how things should be. But Jesus then responds. How could he do otherwise? And the response is scathing. Verses 15 and 16, he charges the synagogue leader who would have been the man most known in their community, would have been considered their spiritual leader, upstanding figure, and he points to him and he says, you're a hypocrite. This is hypocrisy. You can imagine they would have heard a pin drop at that point. The breathtaking truth that Jesus then goes on to explain is that the additional laws that the Pharisees had created allowed them to untie their donkey or ox and give it water so it didn't die on the Sabbath. But somehow Jesus was not allowed to untie or unbind an Israelite woman and give her freedom from her affliction. And Christ makes it clear that human need must take precedence over these man-made laws. Elsewhere in Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus has already stated this priority. He asserted that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The leader claimed to love the law, but he had no love for God's people. He didn't care less about the woman. His lack of compassion is stunning. Here is a fellow Israelite, a daughter of Abraham, as Jesus puts it, who is praising God for her physical freedom, and yet all the synagogue can, lead her, can think about is imposing spiritual bondage on her and all the other people. I conducted a, a funeral in 2005 for an elderly lady unconnected with the church I was at in Chatswood, um, the reason the family wanted a local minister to take this service at all was because she had grown up in the church. Her parents had been strong Christians and they thought this was a way of honouring that upbringing. And when I met with the daughter to plan 
uh, the funeral service, uh, she stated how her mother had been brought up in a very strict Christian household and that as her mother was growing up, the number one thing was obeying the Sabbath as they saw it. And so the family had a strict routine on a Sunday. They had to stay inside with all the blinds pulled down. No one was to go out of the door unless they went to church. It was not only a non-work day, it was a non-fun day. You couldn't do anything. Perhaps you could read your Bible or you could have a nap. Now, if this story seems strange to you, then let me say it was typical of many Christian families in Australia and many other Western countries right up to the 1960s. Such strict observance of the Sabbath was seen as a mark of Christian holiness, and it was preached as such in many churches. There was good intention behind it in the sense of wanting to follow God's word, but it had become a burdensome legalism. The Sabbath was not intended as a restriction and a burden upon people, but was designed for our good, so that our bodies might rest from their jobs, so that we might give attention to our relationship with God. But sadly, for many people who grew up under it, all they saw was the do's and don'ts. And the one thing that this family understood of Christianity was that Christians are really legalistic about what you can do on a Sunday. That was such a sad conversation. The Christ's miracle in the synagogue confronted the established religious system of Judaism. And Jesus, through his words and his actions, is putting his searchlight, his gaze on the cold legalism of Jewish practice, in particular regarding the Sabbath. It's hardly surprising then when Jesus speaks in this way, and it just sounds like common sense, doesn't it, that his opponents are humiliated. That's what we read in verse 17. Meanwhile, it's of no surprise either that the poor people that lived there who were obviously oppressed by these and other rules were delighted. It was so good. They loved this Jesus character and all that he was teaching and doing. See, like the fig tree that failed to bear fruit that we heard about in last week's passage, Jewish religious practice had become barren. The Sabbath day was the epitome of Jewish religious practice. It was a gift from God. It was full of spiritual meaning, yes, but it had become so bound, so encrusted with traditions that it had become lifeless. It had become painful for the people. They hated it. I think we get pictures of what it is to be physically bound. And that can help us think about this spiritual reality. Foot binding in China was common for many centuries. Uh, it's said to have been inspired by a 10th century court dancer, uh, Yao Niang, who bound her feet into the shape of a new moon and entranced the emperor Li Yu by dancing on her toes inside a golden lotus. I don't know whether that's uh, mythical or not, but um, gradually other court ladies took up foot binding, making it an unlikely and painful status symbol that was then forced on many women for generations to come. Well, how did this work? Well, first, uh, the feet were plunged into hot water, softened, uh, the toenails clipped really short, and then the feet were massaged and oiled before all the toes, bar the big toe, were broken 
bound flat against the main part of the foot. Next, the arch was strained as the foot was bent, almost double over. And finally, the feet were bound in place using these silk strips. And over time, the wrappings became tighter, the shoes smaller as the heel and sole were basically crushed together. And after two years, the process would be complete. And once a foot had been crushed and bound in this way, it could not be easily reversed. Now, I tell you that story because just that thought uh, makes me cringe. Just physically, the sense of pain that would come with that. We feel the weight of that physically binding. And this picture, I think, gives us some idea of the painful spiritual ties that many Jews found themselves in over the Sabbath. It was not just that Jesus thought the synagogue ruler and his supporters were just, you know, a little too rigorous. We've just gone a little bit over the top this week. No, it was that Jesus thought they didn't understand the idea of the Sabbath at all, that they had the wrong idea altogether. You see, back earlier in Luke chapter 6, earlier in this gospel, as we saw last year, in verse 5, Jesus had stunned the Pharisees after doing a similar miracle in a synagogue. And he announced to them on that day, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is, he is the only one that knows how to interpret it properly. That they need to listen to him. The Son of Man was a phrase from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus was saying, he is the God-man, ushered into the presence of the Father, given all authority. And so he's the only one that can tell them how you should understand and live out the Sabbath. And so he was doing that, again, in the synagogue. And the leaders were not happy. Now, Jesus did not come to throw out God's law. He didn't come and say, the Sabbath is no more. The principle of the Sabbath remained in the New Testament. But the desire was to free it from its legalistic practices. And the Apostle Paul would teach similar things in Colossians 2 and Romans 14. So I want to look more broadly at this theme for a moment so that we understand its essence. And see, the word Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday. It doesn't mean Sunday. It means ceasing. It means resting. And to understand really what it's meant to do for God's people, I think going to Jesus' own words in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, is really helpful. In that famous passage in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the first thing to grasp in this statement from Jesus is that he is the one who gives spiritual rest. Spiritual rest comes through him and him alone. The gospel is the thing that brings freedom. Trust in this one who laid down his life. So I want to say to you this morning, if you are weary, if you are burdened with trying to earn your own salvation, by trying to be good enough to please God, by following some moral code, then come to Jesus. The yoke of Jesus is easy. The burden of the gospel is light. It's not about your performance. It's about his payment of your sin on the cross and his resurrection on the third day that gives you new life. 
And that doesn't mean you have a license to sin, that you ignore God's word, that there are no principles for you to live by. Not at all. Notice even in this passage, Jesus talks about a yoke, his yoke that we put on. The yoke is a symbol of subjection. It's something you put on cattle or oxen that plow for you. We're to put on a yoke, but this yoke is different. This is Christ's yoke. He says his burden is easy. We're subject to Jesus as Lord, but it's not a burden. He came that we might have abundant life, that we might live life to the full. And secondly, the rest for our souls, which Jesus promises here in Matthew 11, points us forward. You know, the Sabbath was only ever a signpost for something far greater. It wasn't an end in itself. It was pointing forward to our eternal rest with God. You know, that rest existed in the beginning in the Garden of Eden when we had perfect relationship with God, but then it was broken by the entrance of sin. And then we had to toil in a world that was marred by our brokenness. And then God instituted rest for his people to help them keep looking to him. And then, of course, as things develop, he promised a land of rest, the great promised land of Canaan that they would enter into. But of course, that too was only a shadow of what was to come. It was only Jesus, the fulfillment, the Messiah that was promised, who would truly give people rest, and that only when we were with him permanently in heaven, eternally. And so we look forward each time we meet on a Sunday. Do you stop and realize every Sunday that God calls you to rest, whether it's today or another day in the week, because he knows your bodies need that. But he also wants you to stop and be aware of the eternal reality to which you're going if you've trusted in his son. Heaven is the return to Eden that we long for, that we seek, where we enter into God's rest permanently and share it with him. And so what was lost at the fall is regained at the cross and is enjoyed forever in heaven. And that brings us to a third and final answer about how Christ brings us radical freedom. Not only pointing to the true purpose of the Sabbath, but also more broadly showing us the freedom of God's grace. Showing us the freedom of God's grace. See, the Sabbath is indicative of a much wider problem, an overwhelming problem. Christian freedom has had a battle from the very beginning since Christ came. This was Paul's overwhelming concern in so many of his letters to the churches. It is the overwhelming concern of the letter to the Galatians because he could see in their case that they were putting themselves back under the slavery of works, that they were trying to earn their way to heaven again. And in their case, for many of them Gentiles, they had come out of the slavery of self-effort, trying to work their way to acceptance with their higher being through their self-effort. They had come to understand the gospel of grace, freed from all of that pagan practice. And now suddenly as Christians, they're being influenced by Jews who had not understood grace properly. And they're trying to put them back under the law and say, well, you have to do these certain things. Obey the servant. The Sabbath, have circumcision, whatever it might be, do these things, you must do this as well. And so Paul is fighting that they will retain God's grace, that they will see the freedom that comes in Christ, not put themselves back under such a slavery. 
And as he gets to chapter 5 in Galatians, he's just sort of bursting at this point with the argument he's been building up. And in verse 1 he says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. They'd been enslaved again. You may have seen the 1984 movie, uh, The Killing Fields, which was a powerful movie that awakened the world to the Khmer Rouge's atrocities in Cambodia between 1975 and 1979. This uh, movie is about one particular Cambodian man, Dith Pran, who was an interpreter for a couple of American journalists who were working in Phnom Penh. Uh, When the Khmer Rouge marched into the capital in April of 1975, Uh, There was great turmoil, uh, especially for foreigners who were fearful. And one of the most powerful scenes in the movie shows uh, Diff Pran trying to rescue his American friends and risking his own life in doing so. Well, the American journalists, along with most other Westerners, were safely evacuated from Cambodia in the weeks that followed. But Diff Pran, of course, and many others like him, had to stay behind and struggle under the brutal regime. Communist groups' radical policies led to the death of an estimated 1.7 million people, not just from executions, but because of enslavement. They forced millions of people out of the capital city, out into the field to be farm labourers, and they often died from hunger, from disease, from overwork. And the sites where their bodies were just unceremoniously disposed of became known as the killing fields. You know what the terrible irony of the Khmer Rouge coup was? That as they marched in Phnom Penh in April of 1979, many of the people cheered them. They celebrated them as liberators that were going to free them because the country had faced one dictatorship after another for many years and the people had basically been enslaved. How wrong they were. The slavery would only get worse. They put themselves back under a new slavery. And Paul wants to say in Galatians 5.1 that the Jewish law can become a yoke of slavery in comparison to Christ, our liberator. Well, what's the application for us? How are we to think about this wider truth for ourselves today? Well, I want to say to you firstly that there are many additions to the gospel within churches today that we need to watch out for. For example, many teach things such as you can only be saved by reading the King James Version of the Bible. All other versions are corrupt. This one dropped from heaven. It's, it's better than the original Greek and Hebrew. You have to read that. Without that, you cannot be saved. Or unless you have been baptized in our church, you have not had the one true baptism. And you won't be sure of your salvation unless you come be baptized at our church. You have no assurance before God. Or they will say, well, you cannot be sure that you're a Christian unless you have spoken in tongues, because that is the only proof that you have received the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, then we need to pray for you so that you have that demonstration. Without it, you have no certainty before God. 
Or you need to come to our church and follow our traditions. You need to confess your sins to a priest. You have to pray certain prayers regularly. Unless you do these things, then you can't be sure. And you see, the problem with each of these things is that this is Jesus plus something else. Trust in Jesus, yes, but that's not enough. You need to do these other things that we're going to tell you. Come under these laws that we're telling you about. And all such modern legalisms are false doctrines. They undermine the gospel of grace. Now, you might say to me this morning, well, none of those four things you've listed are anything that I've had to struggle with. Um, I can see those things are wrong. Well, if that's true, then praise God. But let me say, it doesn't need to be told you by somebody else. Sometimes we create our own legalisms, our own laws that we're trying to abide by. I know for sure there'll be people here this morning who are not sure about their right standing with God because they haven't done certain things this week. You know, I didn't, I didn't read my Bible every day. I, I didn't pray before I came to church this morning. I, I didn't help that person that I should have this week. And so I feel um, God is not looking on me well today. My, my standing with him is marred. I'm, I'm not right before God because I haven't matched up to a code that I've set myself. I want to say that's one of the greatest burdens that people on this earth live under. Jesus came to free you from that. Right standing with God is not dependent on your performance. It can never be earned, not even partially. There's nothing you will ever do or say that will make you 1% better before God. He has done everything in his son. I want to say to you that this is true freedom. This is radical freedom. This is what Jesus delivers that no one else can deliver to you. Christ's words are powerful. Free at last. God Almighty, free at last. Christ's righteousness graciously given to us. Nothing we do, everything that he has done. This is the gospel of grace. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't call us to try and climb up some ladder of good works to you. We can't do it. If we try to, it's such a crushing burden that we have no assurance. We never feel right. But in Christ, we have one who has borne our sin, who freely gifts us his perfect righteousness. And in him, we can have a right standing before you. Not because of anything we've done or will ever do, but simply because of him. Lord, help us to see again the freedom, the radical freedom that comes in Jesus and in him alone. Help us to throw ourselves in complete dependence upon him. Lord, help us this week to live understanding this freedom we have, that we might understand and reflect more and more on your wonderful grace, your undeserved favour to us, and live by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.